Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Let me start with an introduction. I'm very pleased to introduce my very special guest, William Doherty, PhD. Bill is passionate about encouraging people to stand up and take back their communities, their health, their parenting skills, and their marriages. That's a lot. Uh, Bill is also one of the co-founders of Braver Angels, a very impressive nonprofit group that is helping bridge the divide in America's red and blue states in order to find common ground. This project has spread throughout the United States and to other parts of the world. I also think that you've been on the Hill talking with people there about bridging the divide, which is really impressive. And we certainly know, we I'm sure most people would agree we need that. If anybody's interested for more information, you can you can get the information at braverangels.org. If as if that weren't enough, Bill is also a professor and director of the Minnesota Couples on the Brink project in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. Bill's work focuses on his background in family therapy and community engagement. As a researcher, he has documented high levels of divorce ambivalence among couples even after they have started the divorce process. As a therapist, he has developed a technique called discernment counseling, where one partner is leaning out of the marriage and the other wants to save it. I think that'd be very valuable for people to know about that because I think that happens quite a bit in couples work and it's it's hard to know where to go. Mm-hmm. So let me start with some questions. Uh, your, your book, The Ethical Lives of Clients, Transcending Self-Interest is very interesting. Yet I think most therapists think of ethics in terms of professional ethics. Yeah how we deal with clients, what do you mean by ethical issues that clients, well, what do you mean by Mm -hmm. what it means for ethical um, issues that clients have to bring to therapy? Instead of therapists having ethical issues, the client has. Exactly, yeah. Well, first of all, let me say thanks for having me here, Glad, and thanks for that introduction. I listened carefully and it all, it all sounded accurate, so that's always a good start. Um, so, the when therapists, as you said, think about ethics, we think about professional ethics, our ethics. So, you know, the, the the do no harm, you know, main one, but also respecting confidentiality and boundaries and so on. But we've mostly ignored the fact that uh, we all, including our clients, have ethical concerns and dilemmas as we go about our lives. Um, for instance, uh, a decision about whether to divorce or whether to you know, stay and keep working on a marriage is in part an ethical issue because you made an original commitment and now thinking of, of, of not um, of letting go of that commitment. Um, uh, affairs, our secret affairs are, uh, are, are ones. Uh, we have a, a lot of um, family cutoff decisions that people are making that they agonize about. Okay, a difficult parent, and do you uh, maybe that parent is aging, and what are you, what the clients? What are your responsibilities to that person who's been so difficult for you in your life? You know, <clears throat> family secrets, and and uh, you know, just think about the, the world of uh, discovering a DNA heritage now. Okay, and so do you reveal? Do you not reveal? I mean, just on and on. Um, we have um, clients to be human is to deal with um, ethical concerns. uh, And those have been largely absent from what we talk about and what we teach about uh, in therapy. So um, in my book, The Ethical Lives of Clients, I'm kind of raising that up as something that we should, we can approach as part of the human condition and not view as something that's alien or foreign to what we do in therapy. Okay, well, I have some follow-up questions, but I think I'll save them because it's very interesting about 
what to do with some of these things. Um, another question, you talk about expanding therapeutic conversations beyond the client's self-interest, which pushes most therapies beyond our training experiences and beyond most of the therapeutic psychotherapy, psychoanalytic literature. Can you expand on this idea? Yeah, so let me say how I define ethical issues in therapy, client ethical issues. I define it uh, as a client behavior that has consequences for the welfare of others. So that, that's what I'm talking about. We, we live, uh, we're social creatures, we influence other people um, for good or bad. Uh, and, and so the examples I gave before, the family cutoff, the divorce decision, the affair, the keep or, or a family secret or not, um, the lying uh, to protect oneself, um, these are all behaviors that have consequences that, uh, for the welfare of others in our lives. And that's, so that's what I mean by the ethical domain. Uh, and, um, and we know these come up in therapy all the time. Uh, and my, my critique of why, my explanation for why we have not systematically addressed this, uh, uh, you know, in the training of therapists, um, is that we, that psychotherapy comes out of the Western individualistic worldview uh, and the medical model, even though we don't, most of us don't like to think we're in the medical model. Well, there's a patient, there's a client, there's a therapist. And in that model, my job is to promote the, the welfare just of this person in front of me. So the dilemma gets to be when, when there is a tension between my client's perceived self-interest and the consequences of their actions for others, that's the ethical domain. And we have not systematically paid attention to it because I think we collapse it back on the question, what do you need to do for you? Okay, well, that might lead into this next question I have, um, but I haven't heard of this, this uh, term before, so you can tell me. Uh, you talk about moral foundations theory. Mm -hmm. Since I think probably many listeners, like myself, probably are not familiar with this concept, whatever you have to say would be helpful. Yeah, so this is Jonathan Haidt's work, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, um, he's a, a, a prominent social psychologist, and he and his colleagues have uh, done research both in the U.S. and uh, internationally on um, what I call moral intuitions, moral uh, feelings, if you will, that he calls foundations, um, uh, so that uh, uh, how how people intuit, how intuitive, immediate responses uh, to uh, situations around harm and care, around you know fairness and and injustice, uh, fairness and cheating. Um, um, those are those are examples of universal ones. Um, we have uh, um, moral, ethical intuitions around um, uh, such things as respect for uh, authority and elders. Um, uh, you know, so just just think about uh, when um, uh, when you have. Um, I'll take the, the one about cheating and and fairness. Somebody cuts in line at the movie theater, uh, even if they cut in line behind you, so that it doesn't immediately affect you. Most people have an immediate, spontaneous, well, that's wrong, they shouldn't be doing it, okay? Um, uh, and that would be an example of a moral, ethical intuition that he, he calls a foundation. Um, and so we, we um, uh, and then there's some that are more prominent in different cultures, like um, a, a purity and contamination, a very um, major emphasis in certain religious and cultural traditions, like in India, um, but even in a place like the U.S., um, something like the incest taboo is in part about an intuitive sense that uh, you shouldn't be uh, making out sexually with your sibling, right? Like, whoa, okay? Um, and and that, that is what he's saying is that we all as human beings, as social creatures, have intuitions 
that are not necessarily thought through very much. They're immediate intuitions about, about right or wrong. And that what we end up doing then is trying to explain them in our minds to justify what our intuition was. Um, and so, um, so anyway, that's what that theory is. And he's written a lot about it. It's a very, a very interesting approach. Uh, it's different from a lot of um, listeners might be familiar with Piaget and Kohl, Kohlberg, uh, where the, the kind of um, ethical reasoning, this, this is about, if you will, moral emotions, which, which is why I think it's so useful for therapists to know about. Could you repeat his name again, maybe spell it again? Yeah, Jonathan Haidt, and it's spelled H-A-I-D-T. Uh, H-A-I-D -A -A isn't David, T isn't Tom. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, so um, you have written also about um, community and public dimensions of the self. Uh, I'm very interested in the need for community connections. I'm assuming there's a relationship, but you can tell me uh, if that's the case and uh, what these ideas mean to you, community and public dimensions of the self. Yeah, so the, basically what I'm saying in my book is that we, uh, we are the self is inherently relational. Uh, it is not. Uh, it, it is. We, we don't live in a sort of an atomized, uh, separate, completely separate self. That we are. The self is 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 uh, made up in part of our relational bonds. There is no way to think about a human being outside of relationships. Um, and and of course, it's easiest to think of those in terms of our a family, a close friendship relationships. Um, but we are also uh, tribal creatures. We are, we, we, we live in communities. We evolved in, in uh, probably in hunter-gatherer, uh, you know, communities of 100, 150 people. And now we live in, in broader societies. And so um, we, we're not an, an island unto ourselves. We are inherently connected. And, and so this is the the kind of the public dimensions of 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 self, uh, which are really showing up now a lot in the therapy world around what I call political stress, uh, people's political beliefs and who they vote for, uh, which political communities um, they identify with, and this is where braver angels that the work on the red blue divide comes in, and so. Um, political identity, which is a form of public identity. Uh, and now, according to the political scientists, it uh, outstrips religious identity and many other kinds of identities as, as, some, as salient to who we are. Um, and so um, in, in, my, uh, in, in my own work, I see the ethical, moral dimensions of life, not only as the, in the micro world, but in the macro world. So what are our responsibilities as citizens, um, uh, not just what are our entitlements as citizens, but what are our responsibilities? So that, that's, that's what that, that means. What came to my mind as you were, as you were speaking was a, uh, of a slide that I did one time when I was talking about or preparing to talk about attachment theory and how infants come out of the womb seeking to uh, attach. They, there's no hatred when they come out. I mean, maybe that, that, I don't know, they could be hungry, but fundamentally they're, they're seeking another human being with whom he or she can connect. Mm -hmm. So it starts from the very beginning. It starts what from the goes awry happens because of, I guess, interactions with people. I guess we could say that. That's right, exactly. And that constitutes who we are. And then the ethical part in this is that to be in relationship is to have uh, some mutual responsibilities in relationships. Now, obviously, the, the infant doesn't have a lot of responsibilities to the parents, but as they get older, they do. And then as we look at adult children and their parents, 
and we have a client coming in with a difficult relationship with that parent uh, and, and trying to discern whether to continue in that relationship or cut that parent off. In fact, my book begins with a case of, of, of somebody trying to decide whether to basically say goodbye to her mother and have nothing more to do with her. Uh, and that my client was the only child of a pretty frail and very difficult mother. And my client was, um, felt like she was, um, her mother was always critical of her. She, every time they talked on the phone, it was very difficult. My client's friends were urging her to um, divorce her mother, if you will, to just say, we're done. Um, uh, and by the way, um, my, uh, her friends, she had many therapist friends who were giving her this input. And my client, uh, had a an ethical moral concern about doing that okay as the only child of this woman who was now a widow and was you know was approaching the frail years of her life and um my point in in my work is that in in trying to help a client navigate that um, most therapists are on their own, on their own. Um, uh, now, not on her own in terms of uh, what are her feelings about her mother, that past with her mother, a guilt she may feel. In other words, the emotional self, hey, well, that's what we do for a living. But how to help somebody navigate uh, their, their self-interest, if you will, and their obligations, their sense of their obligations, uh, what happens there is that therapists make it up on their own. We have we don't have explicit ways, and that's part of what I, I say is that you know there are explicit skills for helping navigate, helping clients navigate this, and that if we're not if we're if we're not careful, we will uh, go back to uh, what do you need to do for you, and don't let anybody guilt you. Uh, now, my training in the seventies, I don't know when you train, I. Well, I was just trained to say, what do you need to do for you? Uh, and don't let society impose anything on you. You're a free agent. Um, and um, I remember hearing a therapist once, a very good therapist, uh, say to a client, we were doing group therapy. Um, now, if, if your mother was a friend, would you want to keep her as a friend? And the answer, of course, was no. Um, and what that does is it puts friendship, which is a somewhat more transactional relationship. We remain friends, well, if we're good for each other. It puts that mother, this parent, uh, adult child relationship into the same category. And, and that was a question that was uh, you know, clearly well-intentioned, but it's, it's sort of an apples and oranges. I mean, would you wanna hang out with that teenager if, the, if, the, if she wasn't yours? Well, probably not, because she's quite difficult. Okay, it's not. It's it's not. It's not a relevant question, and it reflects this notion that all of our commitments, all of our obligations, are completely self-chosen every day. And we all know intuitively, as a parent, you don't wake up in the morning and say, "Am I going to be into taking care of my kids today and being committed to them, or am I done with this parenting thing?" No, we know that intuitively. We know that that's not the right that's not right but when we get to adult relationships with family members we can easily apply a kind of i think a hyper individualistic uh, way of thinking and we influence our clients with that no that's a good point and i'm thinking of a couple of people who get to the point where they can't deal with their parents and they put them someplace and you know everybody's unhappy and those are difficult things to to sort through and to make decisions about, but they're also very important. Yeah, and can we hold help them hold the tension around responsibilities to others, like a parent, and responsibilities to self? Can we help? Can we help people stay in the tension and not collapse it? And here's where I think the fear a lot of therapists have is of of, of being moralistic or invading autonomy or you know um, being kind of simplistic. Well, she's your mother; you have to take care of her, kind of thing. Uh, direct advice giving. That's not what we do as therapists. So there's a fear of getting into that territory. So I'll give you an example. Um, 
Uh, a very seasoned therapist told me uh, after he heard me speak about this that some years ago, um, an elderly man had come to him um, for, for, for help. Uh, he was uh, anguished about a decision um, related to his wife and another woman. His wife had Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it was pretty far advanced and she no longer recognized him, her husband. And he was lonely and he, uh, he was um, beginning to strike up a relationship with another woman. And he was agonizing about it. He had never cheated on his wife. He had made his vows. She was still his wife. He still took care of her, but he was drawn to this other relationship. And the therapist did not know what to do with that and said, um, uh, uh, you have to go to your priest to talk about that. That's, that's not what I do. Okay. Um, and, and he wasn't proud of having said that, by the way, but what, when I asked him questions about it, he thought he needed to have the right answer. He needed to be an, you know, an ethicist or a theologian and know what the answer was. Okay. Uh, and since he did not know that, he, he, he kind of, he punted on it. Uh, and, um, and so my work is about how to not punt, <laughs> number one, and how not to just collapse everything to what do you need to do for you and don't let anybody tell you how you should think and feel. That, that's, those are all very important considerations. And I think we all get, well, we all have had situations where we probably have punted, but uh, the more you can stay in the, in the room, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, with the patient or client, the better it is for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a question that's, I think I'm shifting gears a little bit here, but I have been thinking about this, this idea of community. And it, it reminds me of, I think, a question that Martin Luther King Jr. had, and I believe it was the title of his last book. I believe it was his last book. Where do we go from here, chaos or community? And this, this is directed more towards the sense of community that you talk about at that I'm concerned about um, braver, the Braver Angels world is also focused on community and how we can bridge the divide. So I wonder if you if you know about Dr. King's, um, maybe that's an unfair question if you haven't read the book, but. It's I mean, a great subtitle, you know, Chaos or Community. Uh, and I, I think, um, this is playing out in our world um, where <clears throat> we, uh, we see the political other uh, as incomprehensible, as strange, uh, as unlikable and untrustworthy, and as morally compromised. Um, those three categories I just gave you are what a lot of uh, social scientists have distilled polarization into. Othering, they're weird. Don't get those other people. Um, uh, I don't like them. So it's called aversion. Uh, I, I, I recoil from them. Uh, and, um, and moralizing, and that is that they're, they're, they're bad people. My people want what's best for the country and what these other people want is self-serving. Um, and, um, and we carry, many of us carry those attitudes within. So in one of our workshops in Braver Angels is called depolarizing within, depolarize oneself, um, because we carry uh, stereotypes of the 70 plus million people who voted differently than we did. And part of what's interesting is that, uh, you know, we therapists uh, get caught up in the same thing. Um, uh, we're not, uh, I remember an early workshop, it was uh, for Braver Angels probably five years ago, um, where uh, it was teaching skills for communicating across political differences. And, and there happened to be a number of therapists in the audience. And I knew that because a colleague of mine had invited her friends to come. It was, it was in Maryland. And when I asked people at the end of the workshop to say what they took with them, uh, one of the therapists said, well, you know, as a therapist, I know all these skills. There are listening skills and eye messages and all the stuff we, we know. Um, she said, I know all the skills, but I never thought to apply them to political conversations across different. I never thought to apply them to 
disagreements about politics. Uh, and that's part of where we are. Uh, we, we, that many of us function at a lower level, if you will, um, when it comes to politics than we do in other areas. And it hurts the, hurts the country. Well, um, thinking about with one's therapy hat on, mm-hmm. um, I think that this is, the approach is very interesting. And I see exactly what you're saying. I think I do. But I think people are uh, concerned about not telling other people, therapists are concerned about not telling people how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. You're not saying that, but I could see how someone might think that. Sure, sure, absolutely. So that's why we need to discuss this. The, the kind of um, third rail, the, 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 the big fear that therapists have. I mean, you're not functioning as a therapist if you're going around being in control of people's lives, you know, telling them um, what's right or wrong and and uh, giving them a lot of uh, uh, advice, you know, in that simplistic term. My, my my viewpoint is that the ethical domain, which is both personal and communal, uh, is inherently a part of human life and that, that clients are bringing those concerns and dilemmas to us all the time uh, and that we can navigate those with clients just like every other problem they bring to us where we don't tell them how to live their lives um, but but the the fear because it's the moral ethical domain uh, where there is tension between a client's uh, what they perceive as their own needs at the moment and their responsibility is not to harm somebody else. They're in that tension, and um, and therapists, if, if therapists don't have skills for wading into that tension in a way that allows somebody to go into depth on it, um, then there's a danger we will collapse it into one pole or the other. One, I think the main collapsing of it, by the way, is into the poll that says, do what you want to do for you. Okay? That appears to be ethically neutral. It appears to be not influencing somebody, but it clearly is influencing that person. Okay? Um, the other poll, of course, uh, that's not very useful would be to say, well, you shouldn't abandon your mother. She's frail. She raised you and, you know, you need to be doing right for her. And that's not therapy, right? I mean, um, that's, not, that's not what we do as therapists. Um, but but the, the bigger danger is to think we are neutral when, in fact, we are enacting a broader cultural, mainstream cultural idea that, that individual self-interest uh, trumps everything else. Um, so, uh, and, and here's where having a kind of cultural lens comes into play. I have a number of graduate students from uh, Asian uh, cultures, um, and those are much more communal collective cultures. Uh, to, to focus primarily on what do you need to do for you when it comes to a family obligation looks in those cultures highly, um, highly, um, kind of moral, ethical, uh, highly prescriptive um, because it's not in that culture, okay? Um, but in, in mainstream American culture, saying, what do you need to do for you? And only say, it's not that that's a bad question, but I mean, if that's your emphasis, that appears to be neutral. It appears not to be unduly influential. And I'm arguing it is influential. To do therapy is to exercise influence. Every question we ask, everything we follow up on, um, uh, everything we attend to has influence. Um, and uh, how to do it skillfully, compassionately, so that, that clients come to their own decisions uh, without undue influence from us, that's the name of the game in therapy. It's just that we we're afraid of the pull, the, 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 the part of, of clients, which is that they feel an obligation to somebody and not to harm somebody. That's a scarier thing for us to get into. Uh, 
That's that's all very interesting. What came to my mind when you said uh, something about different cultures and uh, Asian culture is that I I have taught infant observation uh, classes in China and through Kappa, which is a, a group of psychoanalysts who who uh, teach therapists in, in China and. Uh, this infant, in this infant observation class, or the idea of it is a therapist goes into a home once a week for a year and doesn't write anything down, just observes and then writes it, writes up a, an observation afterwards and then talks about it in class. Well, teaching classes here and teaching classes in China were so very different mm. because of the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very communal, obviously, as most people know, the mother or mother-in-law moves into the family home and uh, it's everybody sits down at the table. And I mean, it, the baby comes into a different kind of, of community right from the beginning. It's not just mom and dad there, you know, who's going to feed the child tonight. It's, it's just such a different experience. And even from afar, being here mm -hmm. to observe that was was very powerful yeah uh, and yeah. so you can see that that somebody from the, the different cultures comes into therapy and um and they see they see the therapist as culture bound uh, but we we tend to think in the western world in the psychotherapy that we're not culture bound we are very much culture bound. Uh, and one of the generalizations about collectivist versus individualistic is that in Western culture, we tend to see the child uh, as, as you know, we don't want them to be conformist, okay? They're, they're born and, and we have to help them develop their individuation. Um, in many collectivist cultures, the sense is that kids are born kind of too much individuals, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the know all the time as the, as the, uh, the, the two-year-old, uh, they have to be brought in. So the focus is on bringing them inside because otherwise they'll kind of run wild. Those are neither right nor wrong, but they're different cultural orientations. Okay. Well, let me move on to something a bit different. Um, another concept that you talk about is the citizen therapist in a democracy. Yeah. Now, this is something that I'm also interested in. I'm, I'm writing a chapter in a book, and the chapter is uh, why truth is essential in a democracy. I think the rest of it will be pivoting towards evidence. But mm -hmm. at any rate, it's something yeah. I'm also interested in. Do you see a relationship between these two things? Uh, and if so, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So the this uh, the citizen therapist idea, that's uh, actually the subject of my next book, which is now in production. Um, uh, and the idea is that <clears throat> we are, uh, uh, if, if we allow ourselves to be, we are more than just treating professionals inside four walls in a little space, you know, with comfortable chairs, uh, that we have a role if we choose to play it uh, in the larger society. So that's the idea of the citizen that, that stands in for uh, what's our public, what's our public role? Uh, and, and how do we use the knowledge and skills that we have in, in our work um, as, if you will, public health professionals as citizen therapists um, and to do it though not just with in a traditional okay so we do psychoeducational workshops or we write books for the lay public that's all good i mean i've done those things but how can we bring a deeper analysis and i know this is so much a part of your work here and how do we bring a deeper analysis of what's going on in 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 our world so that we're not just taking sides we're not just saying, okay, and so most therapists, let's be real about this, most therapists are more blue, and that is more liberal than red, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so if we're not careful, and I'm afraid that in many of our professional associations, that's what, that's what we end up doing. Uh, the professional association puts out a, 
a memo, uh, uh, you know, or a, a report, a position statement on the major issues of the day. And that becomes, those become almost, they could have been written in many ways by one set of political leaders with a little bit of psychological terminology. Um, I don't think that's a good, and that's not what I mean by citizen therapist, okay? That we, we, that the citizen therapist around our device now tries to bring some deeper understanding of what's happening that doesn't disparage anybody, uh, but that, that tries to go deeper. And I know this is a big part of what, what you do and it's, it's what I'm also trying to do. So I, for example, uh, to understand, so to put it in very simple terms now, I, 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 when I give talks in communities, I, I often end by saying that um, I'd always wanted to speak more than one language. I always wanted to be bilingual, or multilingual, but I never was until I got involved in this Brave for Angels work where I'm dealing with reds and blues and purples and everything all the time. And now I am bilingual. I can speak red or blue. Uh, that I, just like in couples therapy, which is sort of my major clinical work, I can't really help a couple unless I can understand both of them in their uniqueness, their language systems, their metaphors, their distinct emotional landscape. Okay, I have to get both people. Um, and uh, so for me, as in terms of our societal divides, then I try to, to try to discipline myself to try to understand both sides or all sides as they experience themselves, not my judgments as an outsider on them. Although I, I do that. I mean, I, I, I can also, I vote and I, mean, I have my judgments, but when I'm in my citizen therapist role, uh, I am uh, for everybody present and I'm for both sides. I'm for healing the divide. It's essential to do. And I mean, you can't, in couples therapy, for example, you, you can't side with one person or the other. Even if you have if a pull in that direction, you just can't, you can't do it. That has to all be kept to yourself. Um, I think that you do a very good job because I've heard you speak before, uh, doing this in the political arena. And for some people, that's very difficult. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's everybody should do that. I, I talk about um, uh, th three R's, uh, resist, replace, and repair. Um, and um, so resist means <clears throat> being involved in the struggle and, 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 and trying to um, win important political battles that have to be won. That part of a democracy is a competition. Uh, and, um, and so, and then if there are forces that need to be resisted, you resist them. Uh, the second is replace. And that is, well, what happens if you actually win? <laughs> and a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, like I think about Occupy Wall Street, it would be an example. The Tea Party would be one on the right. They had major critiques. And then what else? I mean, how do you, if, you know, if, it, how do you govern? How do you have policy? What do, what do you do? What do you replace it with? In fact, that's one of my, as I look back at the uh, abolitionist movement of the 19th century, they succeeded in abolishing slavery and then they went home. And then we, we, never, we never repaired as a nation. And so that's the third one is repair. Uh, and uh, I, um, I chose, I had been involved to be transparent here, um, I've been involved in organizing a therapist to resist a, a, what I call Trumpism when, when Trump was running um, and uh, wrote a manifesto that a few thousand people of therapists signed. I was on media because I saw what Trump represented as a threat to democracy and a threat to the mental health of the nation. So clearly I was in the resistance. Um, after he was elected, and then by happenstance, I, I, I was asked to do a workshop with Reds and Blues. Um, and then I realized, oh, that, that really was powerful. And, and then I moved to repair, okay? That's what I do. So it's not to say that everybody ought to do that, but if therapists don't do that, who is going to do it? Yeah. That's a good, that's a very good question. I've wondered something similar myself. Um, it puts, it puts a major responsibility on the shoulders of therapists, but 
who else, as you say, who else is going to do it? Maybe the clergy to some extent, but uh, somebody has to be uh, affiliated with some kind of religious group in order for that to work. Yeah, so let me give an example. Uh, <clears throat> next week, I'm going to be traveling to New Hampshire to do a, 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 a third workshop with members of the New Hampshire legislature. Uh, and it'll be half Republicans and half Democrats. Uh, and it'll be uh, a repetition of a workshop I did for another group of their legislators last year, in which um, in small groups, everybody gets four minutes to uh, answer this question. Uh, what life experiences have influenced your values and beliefs about public policy and public service? What life experiences have influenced your values and beliefs about public policy and public service? And we give people time to prepare to answer. It's a talking stick format. There's, there's, there's no interruptions or questions. And um, every time I've done this, including I did this with some members of Congress, it is a powerful, a powerful experience. Powerful. Um, uh, and and um, so part of my citizen therapist job is to design that as this environment with, with a question that they know in advance, they've reflected on, and they have a space to talk about, to share. And then at the end of that, the question then in pairs, red, blue pairs, and then in the whole group, the question is, what did you learn from listening to other people share, uh, particularly people who differ from you politically? And it's really quite powerful. And I, I, I want to tell you a, a little story. Uh, of when I the first time I did this with elected officials, um, a, a a Democrat said that he was raised in a foster family uh, because his his father had abandoned the family, his mother had paranoid schizophrenia, and um, and so he was he bounced in and around the foster care system a lot of his childhood, and that became a driving motivator for him uh, it eventually to go into politics and to try to be helpful to these kids and families, keep them together if possible, or at least improve the foster care system. He finished and a Republican said, I don't believe this. I grew up with the foster care system. And he told his story and it became one of the drivers for him. Now they chose different pathways the Democrat chose more government services. The Republican chose the private sector, the religious sector, the volunteer sector. Um, he got into labor unions, helped people get jobs. They had the same life, similar life experience, the same driving passion, and they chose different means, political policies to get there. But at some deep level, they connected to each other in ways that were that they had not imagined they could. Well, speaking of connection, when I observed uh, for, for a weekend Braver Angels exercises, I was absolutely amazed and I would have never predicted it of how reasonably people could uh, connect with each other when they started out with very different views. They still had the views they had Mm -hmm. But somehow they they did find common ground in some areas, and it it was extremely powerful. That you reminded your word reminded me of the powerful experience I had with Braver Angels. Yeah, well, thank you. And a, a lot of it is in the design. Uh, people have to come with goodwill, uh, but if you ever want to see people coming with goodwill and a bad design, what ends up happening? Um, a Google Oprah Winfrey 60 Minutes Partisan Divide, something like that, because I saw her, just as we we're getting going with, with Braver Angels, um, she on 60 Minutes had like seven red, seven blues around a table. And maybe Oprah thought with the power, her, her dynamism or charisma, this would work out. And here's, here's what they sat around and she said things like, well, what do you think about the Russian collusion thing? Or now, you know, now would be uh, should Trump be indicted or whatever. And they went after each other. They interrupted each other. They were antagonistic to each same people that to come to our workshops. And at the end, when she said, what are you taking with you? I remember one person said, we're going to have a civil war. And I tell you that the same people 
if they came to a Brave Angels workshop, and there are other groups that do this, it's just not us. But if you have a good design and you have good facilitation, and this is again, the work of a citizen therapist, right? And so Oprah, you know, you know, I don't want to put her down, but you can't do that on your charisma. You can't, and you just can't, it was like I said, uh, lions on one side, uh, tigers on the other, throw red meat in the middle. Um, and uh, what we're good at as therapists is creating environments that, that bring out the best in people. That's what you saw. Yeah, well, I think the key is training. You could have the brightest, um, most connected uh, or therapists who have the ability to connect with people. But in this case, when there is a divide, you need to have special training to be able to help people speak with each other. Well, so let me comment on that because this was a big part of my decision making after um, I and a couple of colleagues started Braver Angels. What the first workshop we did took every skill I had, I had learned in group work and community engagement and couples therapy um, to, to pull off. And I knew that that was not replicable, that was not scalable. And so the workshops, the redesign of that workshop and the one we train people in require mid-level skill, not high-level skill. To be able to follow a process, you keep people on track, you know, you don't have to do real-time interpretations of what people are saying. Um, and so that's some of what I've learned as a citizen therapist is that if I want to have a broad impact on a big country, it can't be in the traditional way you train therapists in multiple stages over years so that they have high, high level skill. We need that. I want like I want my surgeon I want my you know therapist I want everybody anybody I see I want them to have really great skills but if you want to get something out you know more broadly you have to design it in a way that lots of people can do yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense Uh, let's see you've covered uh touched on a couple of the things I want to ask but maybe you could just expand a little um, particularly with regard to individualism. Now, some people hear that word and think, okay, well, yeah, that's the world I live in. We all do our individual thing and, um, yeah, community things, they're important, but I'm kind of the person I am and that's what I want to do and that's what I want to focus on. And I know that's not, you're talking about something different when you talk about individualism, because I think you see it as a a negative thing in terms of therapy. Is that right? Do I have that that right? Yeah, yeah. So really, you can put a label on it like hyper-individualism. I mean, obviously, the important thing about individualism is about personal autonomy, um, the the worth and dignity of everyone and free of coercion. Uh, So there's powerful values there. But when it is, um, uh, but it, it's in a polarity uh, with um, with uh, the community, with uh, relationship, with with uh, uh, obligations to others. That's the dualism we have. That um, if, if ultimately, if you push in the individualism too far, you have uh, you have a survival of the fittest. Okay, um, and um, uh, and so the the problem is when we uh, when our lens as therapist is on strictly on the person in front of me, uh, we can become what I call emotional gladiators for them vis-a-vis the people in their lives. We can either ignore the, their impact on others or we can, uh, and I've got research data on this now, of how often when people go to in individual therapy, when they bring up relationship problems, um, how often they report that the therapist comes up with a diagnostic label for their spouse who they've never met. Uh, often, by the way, it's, uh, you know, it's narcissistic or borderline personality stuff. It's not like saying I'm concerned that your spouse may be depressed. That's a whole other story. Uh, but, uh, you know, negative personality label, they end up... <clears throat> um, 
often not regarding the other person with the same complexity that they regard the person in front of the room. Uh, and, and then I'll tell one little story that symbolizes this. And I won't give the name of a very famous therapist, but uh, when I was trained in the 70s, we heard, heard an audio tape of a world famous therapist uh, who was talking to a married man who um, heterosexual marriage, who was uh, having an affair. Uh, and then somebody at the end in the Q&A said, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I, I, I noticed that the wife never came up in the discussion. And the therapist said, she's not my client. That's hyper-individualism, because if you're married and having a secret affair, it affects somebody, it can affect their health, it can affect their so much, right? And to, uh, and to assume that it just I just have to worry about the person in front of me is hyper-individualism, although that was a brilliant therapist who, you know, who helped many, many people, but had a blind spot in my view, that to help an individual means you have to be concerned about the effects they have on others, not just the effects that others have on them. Well, I think this next question follows that um, in terms of difficult tasks for therapists. And, and I don't think that there are too many training courses that focus on this. And that is the ethical complexities of affairs. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's hard technically to, you have to be really impartial and that's difficult, but you still have to do it with a therapist hat on. Uh, but the ethical complexities adds another dimension, I think. Yes. And here we're talking about affairs that are uh, non-consensual. So I'm not talking about uh, polyamory where people choose a lifestyle. We're talking about affair, a secret affair, which in inevitably applies, involves lying and deception. So the, the, it involves then the unilateral um, changing of, a, of, a, of, a, of an agreement that most people have that we're going to be sexually faithful. So on my own, I say that it's no longer an operation. So that's one, that's an ethical issue there. And the, the, another one is what's the effect on the health, sexual transmitted diseases of my spouse. Uh, and then also just lying and deceiving. Uh, those are powerful. Um, uh, and um, now, it, it, so how do we, and by the way, most people, my experience, when they're having an affair and they're in therapy, they think about that stuff. Now, I guess if you had somebody with a major character disorder, they weren't thinking about it at all. Okay. Most people, they're aware that this is complicated stuff. Um, and can we help them? Uh, and there's a chapter in my book on, on affairs. Can we help them both understand the meaning of what they're doing for them in terms of their history, their development? You can do a deep dive into what the meaning is for this without judging somebody. You know, uh, because there are many kinds of affairs and they are almost inevitably going to say, I just, you know, I wonder if this is fair to my spouse or blah, blah, blah. And you ask them to follow up on that. You you um, you invite that. And then if they're not going there, you can say I, I, I've said the things to folks. So you, you say your wife doesn't know now. Probably likely she's going to find out at some point that usually what happens. Um, and how do you think that's going to affect her at that point? People do not go running out of the room when I ask that question because they are already asking themselves the question. The quintessential ethical question in therapy is how do you think what you're doing or considering doing will affect this other person? That's the quintessential ethical question. It's not way out, but I, I tell you, Karen, a lot of therapists are afraid to ask it. And I think it's our hang up, not the client's hang up. The clients are thinking about this stuff, but we're signaling to them what's okay to bring up and what's not okay to bring up. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Several people come to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me, let's see, ask about a related question. Um, what are some of the basic tools? I think you've talked about them. Maybe you want to add, and maybe you've covered covered this already, but some of the basic tools for consulting with clients about relational ethics in their yeah. life. You have yeah. covered. 
So I talk about, uh, well, refining these in terms of skills, which are the standard skills of therapists and then applied here. So I talk about leap and then see. Leap is listen, listen for the client's ethical dilemma. Uh, don't just collapse it into the individual psychological. Listen for it. Explore. So a lot of it is, is exploring, asking questions. Um, what we do as therapists, uh, having them, the, the woman who was thinking of cutting off her mother, you know, what, what's it like when her mother calls and, and what's, what's her sense of obligation to her mother? Explore all of that. Uh, affirm. So leap. Listen, affirm people for for, for bringing these things up and, uh, and exploring them because it's hard. And then P is, so it's leap, P is perspective. So sometimes adding a perspective so that what I offered to my, the client who was trying to decide what to do with her mother, a perspective that, that, that my client was not particularly good at this stage in her life of setting boundaries with her mother. Uh, and she let her mother occupy her time, be critical of her, and that one of the possibilities for our work uh, could be that she uh, work on improving her boundaries with her mother in such a way that she felt that she was she could survive this difficult relationship uh, and still be a see herself as a good daughter who who was there for her mother as she aged. That that was that was what I offered as kind of a both end perspective. Uh, so these are standard skills and then the, the 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 advanced one is challenge and that's what scares therapists okay and that's where your client has a blind spot so i'm thinking about a father recently you know not recently but divorced about it six months ago did not want to have the marriage end um and uh, and his his ex-wife had a new boyfriend who had moved in and he found out that his six-year-old my client's six-year-old son was calling the new guy, dad. This really hurt my client, understandably. But what he told me is he had told his son, if I ever hear that you are calling him dad, I will never talk to you again. Goodness. And so my client at the moment was seeing this as self-empowerment. Okay. I saw this as harmful to a child coming out of my client's hurt. So I had to listen to his pain and then ask him a very hard question. What do you think it's like for your son to hear you threaten that you will abandon him because of a, of a slip of the tongue or because he just fallen into something? And that kind of went, he went, oh, I can see. I can see what I did. Well, that was a challenging, I was, I was challenging him. If he had not said, yeah, I get it, I would have said, well, I got to tell you, this is really terrible for a child. This is very frightening that he could do anything that would lose you as his father. Um, and so he got it. But that was my job, my job to use all my skills to be empathic, but to hold this up to him that he was, that was a threat that was harmed to his child. And what I recommended was that he contact his child that night. Um, I saw this as an emergency. Okay. And he did. And he apologized to his son and it was okay. But that was in the ethical domain. He was coming out of his hurt. I understood he wasn't a bad guy. We talked about that, but what he was doing was harmful to somebody who needed him. So that was psychological and ethical intervention. So you had to, you had to think on your feet quickly and be empathic. Uh, and there is a sad part. I could see how one could feel angry uh, that somebody could say that to their child, but yet you couldn't let that emerge. So you really have to, um, well, have your therapist hat on pretty tightly. Right, <laughs> right. And in this case, it's about a third party. Now, it's easier for, for therapists when it's a child to think about that, but, but you could also be clumsy. You could also say, that's a terrible thing to do to your child or something, or give a lecture about child development. So, but these are skills. So it's easier for clients, therapists to challenge a client around their self-interest. So you're dealing with a woman who's being abused by her boyfriend and they, she said goodbye to him and now he's back and he's been to one AA meeting and she's going to take him back. And you're going, oh, okay. Uh, so you use your skills, you empathize, but then you, ch you challenge her 
about whether she's exercising good judgment here, okay? Because the guy has gone to one AA meeting. Uh, and, and as a good therapist, you have to do that. You do it gently, you do it firmly. What I'm saying is, if a client is harming somebody else and they don't know it, occasionally that happens and you have to be able to challenge the client around that using the same set of skills. But that is what scares therapists to death. And I'm saying it doesn't have to be scary. And that's what my, my, my book is about and, and the training. And I can mention um, you know, that we offer free training in this, this kind of work through the Doherty Foundation. So people can, um, they, you can Google the Doherty Foundation or, or, or DohertyFoundation.org. My daughter and I have set this up and we offer, you know, we offer um, uh, resources for therapists to learn how to uh, be, if you will, a citizen therapist in the room concerned with the people in the lives of the client. And, and, the, and uh, the, the next step after my next book comes out, we're going to be offering training for how to be a citizen therapist in your community. Well, I have a couple of more questions, but perhaps you can come back when that book is out. And we yeah, I'd love to. Love to. Because I think that's, that's going to be a very important book. Um, I, so. I think one of my, maybe this is my last question, and, and I want you to have an opportunity to um, talk about anything that I might have left out or we, we might have left out together. Um, I'm interested, very interested in helping in whatever way I can. And each person can do a little something, I think. But changing the climate in this country that is shifted towards lying and deception in various areas, pretty much across the board. Um, I, I think it's imperative if our democracy is going to survive. I think we have to move back towards truth telling and yep. not fake news and false information. Is that idea related to your work about lying and deception? Well, it certainly is. Um, and there's the private lying, which is um, usually self-protective. Um, and then there's the kind of public lying which is about um, false empowerment and uh, and uh, uh, and a kind of uh, uh, you know the, the term is being used these days called conflict entrepreneurs. Okay, so uh, lying that is self enriching. <clears throat> um, what's happened is, in my mind, is that uh, the lying that goes with warfare. In other words, you're trying to deceive your enemy about your intentions. We've turned regular politics and regular cultural struggles into warfare. And so in warfare, we justify it. And that's, that's what folks are doing. And it has to be named um, um, without, without insulting and denigrating the people who believe it. The, the perpetrators of the lies who are doing it for their personal advancement, uh, lacking conscience in this, in this realm. Uh, those are the ones that have to be challenged and confronted, including in the courts, without disparaging, without um, um, stereotyping um, the millions of people who believe what they're told. So what I just said was part of my therapist hat here. It doesn't, it doesn't help us uh, to um, to actually to think that any of us are above simplistically believing a fact, a truth statement that fits our predispositions and our own biases. That makes a we perfect, all, perfect sense. Yeah, we're all prone to that. Um, it doesn't justify what people are doing. So we have to go, we have to, if you will, go after the, the, the liars, not necessarily the people who believe what they're told. Yeah, I think that's crucial. 
Is there anything else that you think our listeners would be interested that I might have missed? Um, it's a very interesting book. That's Every page has interesting things on it. So you can already do so much in an hour. Uh, no, I, this is a, I've, I've really appreciated the fact that we blended the personal ethics and the, if you will, the communal and public ethics. Because for me, I'm glad you, you got that in, in my book and in my work because they go together well. Uh, what we've often done is viewed the <clears throat> the public dimension as purely political uh, and not ethical, uh, and then ethics gets collapsed into personal and private. Uh, and um, and then the idea is, if you're going to bring about social change, you ignore that and you just go after the power dynamics out there. So I'm glad we I'm glad we were able to blend both of those in our conversation and to highlight. And this is where I know this is such a big part of your work. What do we have to offer as therapists? This term I'm using, citizen therapists. What, what instead of just sitting back and taking sides and bemoaning the state of the world, how do we engage? How do we engage with the best of what we know? Good point. Well, I imagine, even though I had trouble finding it myself for some reason, I think it's because you have so many books. I'll mention this particular book again, the title of it, The Ethical Lives of Clients, Transcending Self-Interest. And I, it is- on, In psychotherapy. Yeah. So get, get the, uh, no, just the, uh, the, the title, there's another word in there, two words. So Ethical Lives of Clients, Transcending Self-Interest in Psychotherapy. Well, maybe that's why I missed it yeah, <laughs> on yeah. Amazon. So, I know it is on Amazon, but the first time I looked, I think it's But, that, but it's, for, it's for therapists, and it's about accepting self-interest, but transcending it in psychotherapy. You have so many books that it was, it was among uh, the, the group. <laughs> um, that's, that's my latest baby, so I'm happy to talk about it here. Okay, well, I'll be very interested in your next book about citizen therapists. Mm -hmm. And also, people can reach you, I believe, at B Doherty, D O H E R T Y, at U M N at EDU, correct? That's right. That's right. B Doherty at UMN for Minnesota, MN.edu. And they can Google uh, Doherty Foundation. Um, and uh, see what free resources are available for more on this. Okay, well, thank you very much. And um, I'll be waiting for your next book. <laughs> great, great. And I know you're producing them. You, you and I are doing, you know, writing a lot these days. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I was so glad to do this interview with you.